0: This is an ordinary meeting of the Academy, and I would like to welcome members and distinguished guests. But it is an extraordinary occasion uh, for two reasons. Uh, first, because of the popularity of this event, we are holding it in uh, this, the Public Lecture Theater of Trinity College, and I would like to thank the Provost and the Fellows of Trinity uh, for providing us with this facility. And secondly, it is co-hosted by the Irish Research Council for Humanities and Social Sciences. So I would like to offer our appreciation to Carolyn Fennell and the Council of the Academy as well as to her predecessor, Maurice Brick, with whom we negotiated a subvention for three events over the three years of my presidency and this is event number two. Again as opposed to dealing with the extraordinary, I will ask the permission of the Secretary to dispense with the, signing of the, minutes, or the reading of the minutes of the last meeting and that we will uh, read them uh, uh, on the next occasion. And that uh, as far as the main business is concerned, there are really two main businesses, uh, both the signing of a role by an honorary member and a formal discourse uh, by that honorary member once she has signed the role. So it is my pleasure as President of the Royal Arch Academy to introduce Drew Gilpin Faust, President of Harvard University, who will this evening both sign the role as an honorary member of the Academy and offer us a discourse on the role of the University in a changing world. The Provost, Dr. John Hegarty, and member of the Academy will respond to the discourse. When members of the Academy bring forward the names of distinguished international scholars to be considered for election as honorary members, they frequently make the case for them having international standing by reference to previous associations with Ireland, either through their ancestry, involvement in particular domain of Irish studies, or through research collaboration with some of the leading researchers or institutions in Ireland. Drew Gilpin Faust possesses none of these attributes and was considered and acclaimed and honorary member by virtue of her scholarly achievements that led in 2007 to her being put forward and attaining one of the most coveted academic positions in the world, the presidency of Harvard University. This was newsworthy at the time uh, because she was the first woman uh, to occupy that post in the history of the university. But I think she prefers to be remembered as the first appointee to the office since the 17th century who was not a graduate of Harvard College. Insofar as Drew Gilpin Faust knew anything of Ireland during her idyllic childhood spent in the rolling countryside of Virginia, it was a place associated with bloodstock because both her father and grandfather were horse breeders and men of the turf. Her first window on the world beyond Virginia and the United States gave her a no more rounded impression of this country since that window was the cherished family collection of photographs of her father, uncles, and both her grandfathers dressed in military uniform from their years of service in two world wars, conflicts with which Ireland has had and still has ambiguous relationships. However, as Drew Faust mentions in one of her books, these photographs which led her to believe that all men were
1: soldiers
0: may explain why she decided to make a career as a historian, and in doing so, chose as a special subject the impact of war upon society. She became more particularly interested in the social impact of the war that had proven most traumatic for the population of Virginia, male and female alike, the American Civil War fought between 1861 and 1864. While business dealings, as well as service in the United States Army, Brought her family, then based in rural Virginia, into the mainstream of the social and political affairs of the United States. So also did the habit of sending their sons for education at Princeton, still in the 1960s, an all-male institution put with strong Southern associations by virtue of its Presbyterian origin and also by virtue of Woodrow Wilson having served as president of that university at the beginning of the 20th century. Drew Gilpenfaust broke with the southern trend by insisting that she should be treated no differently from her brothers and that she also should have the opportunity of being educated on the east coast of America. She opted for Bryn Mawr College, an all-women's Quaker foundation with high academic standards located in the leaky suburbs of Philadelphia and in reasonable proximity to her older brothers who were attending at Princeton. She excelled as a student at Bryn Mawr, and was inspired to become a historian, partly by Mary Maples Dunn, who became both her mentor and a role model, and the chief proceeded from being a history professor and dean at Bryn Mawr College to becoming president of Smith College. The next major decision facing Drew Gilpin Faust was where to proceed for her PhD degree. And she chose the University of Pennsylvania which proved particularly fortunate because she proceeded directly from her doctoral studies to a faculty appointment that she was to fill with distinction for a quarter century. Her years at Penn brought a rapid acceleration through the ranks with associated administrative experience, not only in the university, but in the national professional bodies. And it was there also that she met Charles Rosenberg, then holder of a chair in the History and Philosophy of Science who was to become her future husband and father of their daughter, Jessica. Rapid academic advancement came to Drew Faust because of the high quality of her published work, the nature of which I will summarize by reference to three streams. In her early years, Drew Gilpin Faust explained how the intellectual leaders in the slave societies of the American South justified being owners of slaves at a time when the institution of slavery is being challenged on moral grounds by abolitionists, both within Western Europe and in the United States. As she warmed to her theme, she demonstrated that the arguments adduced by these apologists for slavery were based on classical and biblical precedent, arguments of political economy, and benevolent paternalism, were more in keeping with Western enlightened ideas than were the arguments of the abolitionists, which played for the most part in human emotion and drew upon a selective reading of the scriptures. This theme of scholarship, which reached its widest audience in her 1977 volume, A Sacred Circle, The Dilemma of the Intellectual in the Old South, 1840-1860, earned immediate recognition from the many senior and disputative scholars of the 1960s and 1970s then dedicated to explaining the nature and character of the institution of slavery that had been brought to an end in the United States only 100 years previously. This work of Drew Gilpin Faust also provided an immediate stimulus to an investigation of that which came to be increasingly known as Southern nationalism. The ideology that propelled social and political leaders in what became the Confederate States to take up arms to defend what they increasingly described as their way of life. The second stream of scholarship that brought through Gilpin Faust to national and international attention was the study of women from the American South who stood behind the men they sent to war to defend the Confederacy. This work based on the letters, diaries and photographs of the mothers, wives, sisters and daughters of those who fought in the Confederate armies. Trace for transformation, the position of these women from being ladies who supervised their domestic households from a distance to becoming mothers of invention. That is the title of that book. They became such, first because they had no choice but to assume the managerial roles previously played by their menfolk who had gone to war. And then, as the military cause of the Confederacy deteriorated, to accept the burden of ever-increasing responsibility, and to undertake work for which they had been untrained because so many of their men had become casualties in war, because trusted servants with whom they had previously worked closely threw off the shackles of slavery to assume lives as free and equal citizens of the United States, and because frequently arrogant and disrespectful Union soldiers trespassed upon their property and intruded upon the privacy of their homes. This dual prize-winning work earned Drew Faust plaudits as a historian of women as well as a historian of war. And then logically to the third book to which I will refer, This Republic of Suffering, Death and the American Civil War, published in 2008 and winner of the Bancro- Bancroft Prize. This moving book, based on official records as well as on the correspondence and memoirs of the families of those who died in war, whether fighting in the Union or in the Confederate armies, details how believing Christians sought to grapple with the phenomenon of death on a scale never experienced before, when 2% of the entire population of the United States were killed in four short years. And in an immediacy, because much of the death occurred within a short distance of Washington, Richmond, Philadelphia, and other cities in the border and southern states. Never... And in the longer term, she addressed the question, how, how the survivors and the relatives of those who were dead sought to commemorate those they had lost, whether they had fought on the side of the victors or the vanquished. I draw attention to the scholarship of Drew Gilpin Faust because as I mentioned, it was outstanding as a scholar and also that of her husband, Charles Rosenberg, that brought them both from the University of Pennsylvania to Harvard University in 2001. Charles should be Professor of the History of Science and Ernest Monard Professor in the Social Sciences and Drew as Lincoln Professor of History, a post which he still holds and also as Dean of the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. It was while holding these posts that she brought this Republic of Suffering to completion. And it was because of Drew Gilpin's house, an imaginative and dedicated execution of her responsibilities in these positions, that her name was canvassed by her academic colleagues in the arts and sciences as a person who was president of Harvard University would give top priority to the promotion of quality teaching and fundamental research. It is on this platform that Drew Gilpin Faust was duly selected by the Board of Governors in 2007 to be president of Harvard. And it is because of her commitment and example that she has been elected as honorary member of this academy, and it is for this also that she is particularly well qualified to address the topic, the role of the university in a changing world. I would now ask Drew Gilpin-Faust and her mentor to come forward for the signing of the role as honorary members. the member to come forward and give her discourse.
2: Thank you very much to my good friend, Academy President Canny, to Provost Hegarty of Trinity College, members of the Royal Irish Academy, and honored guests. As I anticipated joining you here today, a famous story came to mind that involves the poet Robert Frost, when he was invited to read a poem at the presidential inauguration of John F. Kennedy, Harvard's most famous Irish American graduate. At some point after the ceremony, Frost supposedly leaned over to the new president and said, you've something of Irish and something of Harvard. Let me advise you, be more Irish than Harvard. I fear that with me the balance tilts in the other direction and that you will be getting a great deal of Harvard, or at least of my reflections on my experience there in the last several years. But I want to take this moment when so much attention is being focused on universities here in Ireland and elsewhere to consider the place of the university in a changing and globalizing world. Your own Nicholas Canney in his September 2008 President's Report called for this academy to play a role in the discussion of these critical issues, serving, as he put it, as a university of universities. I'm honored to have the opportunity to be a part of that conversation. Prevailing discourse familiar since at least the 1990s emphasizes the university's place as a paramount player in a global system increasingly driven by knowledge, information, and ideas. We live in a time when knowledge is ever more vital to our societies and economies in a world of rapidly circulating capital and people and of revolutionary communication technologies. Knowledge is replacing other resources as the main driver of economic growth. And education has increasingly become the foundation for individual prosperity and social mobility. In the United States, A recent survey found that the proportion of individuals who believe that higher education is absolutely necessary for success increased from 31% in 2000 to 55% in 2009. Data supports these perceptions. A US Census Bureau study in 2002 found that a college-educated American earns about twice as much over a lifetime as one with just a secondary school diploma. Higher education generates broader economic growth as well as individual success. For example, a recent study determined that universities contributed nearly 60 billion pounds to the economy of the United Kingdom in 2007-2008. And of course, this impact is not just national but global. A ferment of ideas and innovation accompanies proliferating exchanges of faculty and students. UNESCO reports a 57% increase in the numbers of those studying outside their home countries in just the past decade. At Harvard, we have seen a fourfold increase in study abroad during the undergraduate years. And now more international students come to us as well, 20% of our total university-wide student population. In a digital age, ideas and aspirations respect few boundaries. The new knowledge economy is necessarily global, and the reach of universities must be so as well. Consider a few recent examples of this current of growth, exchange, and collaboration. The European Union's recently expanded study abroad program, Erasmus, sends hundreds of thousands of students and faculty to 4,000 institutions in 33 countries each year. The Persian Gulf states have recruited international branch campuses with investments in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Education City in Doha involves six American universities on 14 square kilometers of land. New York University's new Abu Dhabi campus opens this fall, admitting just 2% of the applicant pool and enrolling students from 39 countries. We can count at least 162 branch campuses of Western universities in Asia and the Middle East, a 43% increase in just three years. Singapore hosts 90,000 international students, as well as a campus of INSEAD, the Global Business School, and programs with at least four American universities. China has engineered an explosion in higher education, the most dramatic in human history. Between 1999 and 2005, the number of degree earners quadrupled to more than 3 million. China is expected by the end of this calendar year to become the world's largest producer of PhD scientists and engineers. In India, the numbers attending universities doubled in the 1990s, and demand continues to surge. India's human resource development minister has stated that India needs 800 new institutions of higher education by 2020 in order to raise the age participation rate, that is the percentage of college age population enrolled in institutions of higher education, in order to raise that rate in India from 12.4% to a target of 30%. Here in Ireland, that age participation rate increased from 11% in 1965 to 57% in 2003. Your global outreach has expanded significantly as well. Your online portal for open access research, RIAN, went live this month, inviting greater international collaboration. Trinity and University College Dublin's new Innovation Alliance and this Academy's joint innovation venture leverage national and international connections, building on a well-established capacity for technological innovation and entrepreneurship at Irish universities. We have seen these borderless partnerships flourish in ways that truly matter improving lives in dramatic fashion. I had the privilege of witnessing one remarkable example of such an initiative firsthand when I traveled to Botswana last fall. A collaboration between Harvard and the government of Botswana has for over a decade and a half made significant progress in AIDS prevention and treatment. One of its greatest successes has been in all but eliminating mother-child transmission of HIV-AIDS in a study population. It was an unforgettable lesson for this university president about the kind of difference our institutions can make. A lesson rendered powerfully real when I met with a group of the mothers and their healthy, bright-eyed children. When I asked one woman about her hopes for her three-year-old daughter, she smiled and replied, I want her to go to Harvard. Often universities' international initiatives are framed as a competitive necessity for the standing of our institutions, for the global success of our nations and our economies. But if these are competitions, they are ones in which everyone can win through the partnerships they generate, in the opportunities they open, in the fields and minds they expand. Indeed, as other institutions falter in dispiriting succession, universities nurture the hopes of the world in solving challenges that cross borders in unlocking and harnessing new knowledge, in building cultural and political understanding, and in modeling environments that promote dialogue and debate. This description captures an essential part of what universities are and why we need them, why we have looked to them as zones of openness since the first studia generalia in Paris and Bologna attracted students from across medieval Europe to study law, theology, philosophy, and medicine. Disciplines that even then extended beyond nations and across borders. Yet in 2010, even as we marvel at the pace of expansion in higher education across the globe, Even as we around the world collectively acknowledge its critical and ever-increasing importance, even as we recognize its necessarily global scope, we see its future imperiled. We find that the global economic crisis has slowed our cross-border momentum. The world seems a little less flat. And some observers claim that the recession has driven globalization into retreat. As the world oscillates between openness and insularity, many worry that we are entering a more inward-looking period when states begin to resurrect old boundaries and national concerns trump international aspirations. We saw some early indications of increased insularity in the months after 9-11 when tightened security imposed new hurdles for international students. We at Harvard worked to assist students with visa difficulties, but we still saw numbers diminish for a time, and international faculty encountered obstacles as well. The numbers of international students at Harvard and across the United States has now returned to earlier levels, but security concerns continue to inhibit ease of movement for many who wish to cross borders or study or undertake research collaborations. Fears of economic competition from global recession have also intensified resistance To immigration sentiments powerfully demonstrated in the United States in the recent laws passed in Arizona that have sparked nationwide protests talent comes with many different passports and we at universities work to attract and nurture the most promising and creative minds as we do that we find our purposes challenged by legislation that would limit access for such individuals or prohibit them from using their education to contribute to our society. Venture capitalist John Doerr was distressed at the requirement that so many international students are compelled to leave the United States after finishing their education. And he remarked that we ought to be stapling the green cards that permit extended U.S. residence and employment to the diploma of every foreign graduate. At Harvard, we were forcefully reminded of these immigration issues just this month when one of our undergraduates was detained by the immigration authorities as he tried to board a plane. He was returning to work in a laboratory at Harvard for the summer from his home in Texas, where he had lived since his mother brought into this country illegally when he was four years old. His story of achievement in face of daunting odds is a compelling one, and it garnered widespread support, not just from us at Harvard, but from powerful voices in Washington, Senator Richard Durbin and Massachusetts Senator John Kerry and Congressman Michael Capuano. The Immigration Service has now determined it will not pursue any action against him for the time being. I, like a number of other American university presidents, have been vocal in support of the DREAM Act, sponsored by Senator Durbin, which would enable young people brought as children to the United States to qualify for citizenship through six-year provisional status to pursue higher education or military service. But this measure has not yet been passed. As these anxieties about both security and the economy feed resistance to aspects of globalization, we face the specter of heightened impediments to border crossings, both literal and metaphorical, at a moment when higher education, more than ever, requires the free flow of talent and ideas. The global recession has, of course, produced an even more direct threat to the growth and health of higher education, a financial one. While the knowledge economy drives and, indeed, requires the unprecedented growth, of higher education. In many places, university budgets decline and courses, faculty, and opportunities are cut back, even as enrollments and expectations rise. In the United States, perhaps the most dramatic example involves the University of California system, the gold standard of American public higher education. Shortfalls in state revenues led to a 20% cut in the university's budgets this past fiscal year. Faculty and staff have faced furloughs, layoffs, and salary reductions. Students have seen significant tuition increases and diminished numbers of available places. You have experienced your own budgetary pressures here in Ireland, and as I'm sure you know well, higher education in the United Kingdom faces similar challenges. Last week's emergency budget in Britain generated fears of funding reductions of as much as 25%. We are caught in the paradox of celebrating the global knowledge economy and simultaneously undermining its very foundations. The same survey I described earlier that charted the growing sense that university education is an absolute necessity, reported too that increasing percentages of respondents believe that opportunities for college are unaffordable. As they desire it more and more, they perceive it as less and less attainable. At Harvard, we have recently built on our long traditions of need-based assistance to introduce a significantly expanded undergraduate financial aid program intended to combat these pressures for lower and middle-income families and to ensure that Harvard is and is understood to be accessible and affordable for talented students regardless of their economic circumstances. But serious challenges about the cost of higher education persist in the United States, just as they are manifest in the vigorous current debates about fees in both Great Britain and Ireland. The nature of the controversies about costs and budget reductions can alert us to another threat. This is not so much that the global knowledge economy will weaken or falter in the ways I've just described, although those perils are real. I am concerned with assumptions that rest within the very concept of the global knowledge economy itself. There is a danger that the focus on higher education as the fundamental engine of economic growth is proving so powerful that it will distort our understanding of all that universities should and must be. Such assumptions can, for example, encourage a devaluation of basic scientific research, of investigation that may not yield immediate payoffs or solve concrete problems. There's widespread concern in the United States at present about patterns of government research funding that advantage conventional risk-free proposals, what Thomas Kuhn might have called normal science over less predictable, more ambitious, and possibly paradigm-shifting endeavors. The intensely competitive global economy has driven governments everywhere critical partners to higher education to demand more immediate tangible returns on their investments. Too often such an emphasis on the short term can mean especially painful cuts for disciplines whose value, though harder to measure, is no less real. In a series of passionate recent exchanges in the press, British and American scholars have deplored cost-saving measures that have eliminated Britain's only professorship of paleography, terminated offerings in philosophy at Middlesex University, and dramatically cut back the teaching of history prior to 1900 at Sussex. The eminent Oxford historian Keith Thomas concludes in the Sunday Times that, and I quote him, the position of non stem science, technology, engineering, mathematics. The position of non-STEM subjects is seriously threatened. Yet, as Salter Sterling recently reminded us in the Irish Times, and I quote here again, any government worth its salt must be every bit as concerned with the humanities as with technologies. As stewards of centuries-old traditions of higher learning, we must work to assure that the understandable effort to promote what is valuable, not eclipse our support for what is invaluable. When we define higher education's role, principally as driving economic development and solving society's most urgent problems, we risk losing sight of broader questions of the kinds of inquiry that enable the critical stance, that build the humane perspective, that foster the restless skepticism and unbounded curiosity from which our profoundest understandings so often emerge. Too narrow a focus on the present can come at the expense of the past and the future of the long view that has always been higher learning's special concern. How can we create minds capable of innovation if they are unable to imagine a world different from the one in which we live now? History teaches contingency. It demonstrates that the world has been different and could and will be different again. Anthropology can show that societies are and have been different elsewhere, across space, as well as time. Literature can teach us many things, but not the least of these is empathy. How to picture ourselves inside another person's head, life, experiences. How to see the world through a different lens, which is what the study of the arts offer us as well. Economic growth and scientific and technological advances are necessary but not sufficient purposes for a university. And within the domain of science, universities have a distinctive obligation to nurture and fulfill the deep human desire to understand ourselves and the world we inhabit and inherit from the smallest elementary particle to the sweep of the galaxies, even when there is no practical application close in view, and even as we rightly accelerate our efforts to harvest new technologies and therapies from knowledge in its most basic form. It's worth remembering that the most transformatively useful of scientific discoveries often trace their origins to research born of sheer curiosity about who we are and how we can fathom the most intriguing mysteries of the natural world. Our current situation brings to mind the observation of Harvard's distinguished and beloved scholar of Irish history and literature, John Kelleher, whose quick wit some of you might remember. He once commented as he reviewed a folder for the admissions committee, this student is exceptionally well-rounded, but the radius is very narrow. I'm not sure precisely what this student lacked, but his proportions were clearly off, a principle that appeals to our intuitions about what education is for. The ideal and breadth of liberal education that embraces the humanities and arts as well as the social and natural sciences is at the core of Harvard's philosophy of undergraduate education and is embodied in the general education requirements that account for a quarter to a third of each undergraduate student's coursework. But this liberal arts ideal confronts challenges in the United States as it does elsewhere in a world so intent on bottom lines and measures of utility. Ironically, matters seem to be moving in a rather different direction in China. As we risk eroding our support for the humanities, prominent institutions in China are turning to embrace them. At lunch with a dozen or so Chinese university leaders in Shanghai last March, I was surprised to find that what was foremost on their minds, what they most wanted to discuss, was the humanities, the need to expand and strengthen them, the need to address questions of meaning and value, even within those institutions primarily focused on science. Curricular reform underway at a number of Chinese universities is requiring a broad range of course offerings and university leaders are committed to enhancing the teaching of philosophy, history, and literature. Fudan University in Shanghai has introduced a residential college structure like that of Harvard, Cambridge, or Oxford. Sun Yat-sen University in Guangzhou has established a liberal arts college for a small test group of students. Two-thirds of Chinese undergraduate students pursue degrees in the sciences. Fewer than one-third of American students do. Perhaps we are each worried about what our students might be neglecting. But as we marvel at the growth of higher education and the emerging strength of science in China, we should note as well the increasing interest and attention of the Chinese to the humanities. At the heart of the liberal arts and fundamental to the humanities, and indeed central to much of scientific thought as well, is the capacity for interpretation, for making meaning and making sense out of the world around us. We are all bombarded with information. That is a defining aspect of the new global knowledge economy and of the digital platforms on which it rests. American students spend almost every waking hour attached to some information-generating device, a cell phone, an iPhone, a Blackberry, an iPad. They are tweeting or Googling or instant messaging or emailing. What are they meant to do with all this information? How do they digest and evaluate it? If we are to depend on a knowledge economy, how are we to understand what is actually knowledge, or we might say signal, as contrasted with what is near information, what we would call noise? Education measured only as an instrument of economic growth neglects the importance of developing such capacities. It misses the fact that we are all interpreters. It ignores that some things are not about facts, but about understanding and meaning. Let me offer some examples of the contrast. The first example is in the field of law, which constantly requires the reassessment of facts as their significance changes with a changing world. That is how former Supreme Court Justice David Souter described it at Harvard's commencement a few weeks ago, showing as false, the notion that judges decide cases simply by viewing facts objectively and reading fairly. He continued by saying, and I quote, Judges have to choose between the good things that the Constitution approves, values that compete with each other, such as liberty and equality. And I continue to quote, they have to choose not on the basis of measurement, but of meaning. The second example is in the realm of economics. In all fields, we are tempted to overapply our models when our desire for certainty runs past our understanding. Which of us does not have this impulse? And as Paul Volcker, chairman of the U.S. Economic Recovery Advisory Board, recently observed, a basic flaw underlying the recent economic crisis was the notion, and I quote him, that the thinking embedded in mathematics and physics could be directly adapted to financial markets, which, as he put it, are not driven by changes in natural forces, but by human phenomena, with all their implications for herd behavior, swings in emotion, and political uncertainties. Markets, in other words, demand a certain level of interpretation. Economists themselves have come to recognize that humans do not necessarily act rationally in terms of perceived and unambiguous advantage. And so we've seen the emergence of the new field of behavioral economics. A third example is in my own field of history. One aspect of being a historian is pursuing new discoveries. The unknown material in a neglected archive or the data or detail previously overlooked. The historical event never before noticed or analyzed. But history is, of course, not just an accumulation of information. It is ineluctably interpretive. Data does not stand on its own. History does not actually tell us anything. The historian tells us about history. My recent work on the American Civil War, for example, the book about death, grew out of a long and widely accepted statistic of 620,000 war dead, approximately 2% of the U.S. population, the proportional equivalent of a stunning 6 million deaths in the United States today. But no one had really asked about the implications of that fact. How were they buried, commemorated, mourned, remembered? But most of all, I wanted to know what all of that meant to those who lived through it and thus what it might mean about how we live and how we die today. The foundation of the book is investigative. It ends with 50 long pages of footnotes. But the force of the book is interpretive. This kind of understanding lies at the essence of a university. Meaning is about interpretation. It is about understanding the world and ourselves, not only through invention and discovery but also through the rigors of reinventing, reexamining, reconsidering. To borrow a phrase often attributed to Albert Einstein, it is about figuring out what counts as well as what can be counted. Meaning is about remembering what we've forgotten now in a new context. It's about hearing and seeing what is right in front of us that we could not before hear or see. It is about wisdom that must be stirred and awakened time and again, even in the wise. An overly instrumental model of the university misses the genius of its capacity. It devalues the zone of patience and contemplation the university creates in a world all but overwhelmed by stimulation. It diminishes its role as an asker of fundamental questions in a world hurrying to fix its most urgent problems. We need both. There is no one model for a university's success, no disembodied global research university to which we all should aspire. Our variety supports our strength. Nor, as my colleague, Luke Manan has noted, is the practical, the enemy of the true. From the beginning, universities have drawn power from the creative tension between the search for applied knowledge and the devotion to knowledge pursued for its own sake, for the simple satisfaction of curiosity. As early as 1862, the American government addressed this tension at the heart of higher education with the Morrill Act, which founded the land-grant colleges that have evolved into our great public universities. The measure explicitly sought to balance what it called liberal and practical education, encouraging agriculture and the mechanic arts, while at the same time preserving scientific and classical studies. Humans have an insatiable appetite for understanding and for meaning. It is in no small part what makes us human. A testament to that hunger is the remarkable response to Professor Michael Sandel's moral reasoning course at Harvard called Justice. This course taught in Socratic style has long been among the most popular of our undergraduate offerings. Recently it's been filmed and distributed online and now people around the world can experience the course. They can engage with the contemporary moral dilemmas it confronts and with the traditions of philosophy that have addressed similar questions from ancient times to the present. The course, astonishingly, has become something of a worldwide phenomenon. The series has had more than a million viewers. It's so popular in Japan that the Wall Street Journal wrote last week of what it called the newest Japanese TV craze, Philosopher's. I have learned that modern Ireland Ireland chose as the designated word for professor the old Irish term olev, the name for the highest rank of ancient Gaelic poets. I don't know the reason, but I can guess. Poets are acute interpreters, fluent in meaning. Among the best of our time is Seamus Heaney, Harvard's former Boylston Professor of Rhetoric and Oratory, beloved in Massachusetts as in Ireland. Something of Irish and something of Harvard. In 1986, Seamus Heaney composed a villanelle in honor of Harvard's 350th anniversary, and he read it before those assembled to celebrate. The poem begins with a spirit, the spirit of John Harvard, walking Harvard Yard. In the convention of the Villanelle form, its first stanza, then its third and fifth, each end with the same line. The books stood open and the gates unbarred. But in the poem's last line, the conclusion of the sixth stanza, Heaney breaks convention by changing the verb tense of the refrain from past to present. The books stand open and the gates unbarred. The shift unites the past and present of learning, of higher education, and of America's first university. Heaney's deviation from form suggests to me that he may have indeed intended to emphasize what I am disposed to see, the perpetuity of these essential foundations, this immortal spirit of openness, inquiry, and access that have defined and must continue to define universities. In the 17th century, long before science split the atom, before America's triumphal expansion to a distant western coast, a tiny college on the edge of the wilderness, product of that age of global expansion, offered the freedom of learning, the open gates of access to knowledge. And today, one year short of 375 years later, centuries more knowledge has opened for argument. Gates have widened to all from around the world. Begin again, Heaney urges, where frosts and tests were hard. Find yourself. Look to the past to help create the future. Look to science and to poetry. Combine innovation and interpretation. We need the best of both. And it is universities that can best provide them.
0: Thank you, President Faust. And uh, President Faust will be happy to take questions later. But before then, uh, the Provost Hegarty and a member of the Academy will give a formal response to the discourse.
1: Well, President Faust, um, President of the Royal Irish Academy, um, distinguished guests, and colleagues and friends. Uh, it has been a great pleasure to hear the thoughts and reflections of the President of one of the world's most distinguished universities on the role of the university in changing times. Uh, all of us look to Harvard, both as a leader in thinking and also in action. And President Faust has given us plenty to think about this evening. She has done so in a most elegant fashion, covering many aspects of the world and the challenges to education. It is wonderful to be in education. The university is a very special institution. More than any other institution in the world, the university as an independent community of scholars, of debate and discovery, has contributed to the shape of society, its creativity and culture, like no other institution has. Nonetheless, the question still often lingers out there in public discourse um, are the universities capable of adjusting and changing especially at a time when so many institutions uh, of the state have faltered and fallen to their knees yes as president Faust uh, indicated the university uh, is 100 concept of the university is a, is a thousand years old and time after time It has demonstrated its ability and capacity to evolve through all sorts of upheaval and catastrophe. And I think it will do so again in the present challenges. The challenges are just different, but not new. Uh, And it will do so even if the expectations (coughs) of the university have never been greater, Uh, And in the context of a university world that is surging ahead at an extraordinary rate in every geographical part of the world, India, China, South America, Africa, and so on. The themes addressed by Professor Faust, uh, President Faust, to highlight some of these massive changes resonate well with this small nation of ours. Uh, We are experiencing the same challenges. Uh, She mentioned uh, globalization. Um, I'm conscious that the concept of globalization is not really novel uh, to Ireland if you take a long enough view of history. The monasteries in the early Middle Ages were wonderful international centers of learning here. Uh, Scholars came from all over the then known world from Europe to study here. Because this is where the excellence was. and monks from here brought education and of course, Christianity across Europe. So it was a time it was a golden time uh, of of high learning in which the monasteries played a central role for whole communities. And I think there's a lot that we can be inspired by from lessons of that time. In more recent times, and I guess I'm talking about two hundred years of recent times, Um, uh, This small uh, country of ours and western fringes of Europe uh, has been characterized by emigration, much to the US. Uh, So we've been conditioned to think beyond the bounds of our nation and Europe. We have no choice if we think, we have to think about outside the boundaries of this small country. Uh, Nonetheless, I would say that we are behind in terms of the uh, internationalization of our education. Uh, We think we have much ground to to make up, uh, particularly in the context of the shift in the balance of power between East and West. President Faust uh, mentioned that India is contemplating the need for 800 new universities. Think of what that would mean. Think of what the evolution of 800 new institutions would mean. Think of the experimentation that would go on in both learning and research and and pedagogy. Um, And think of What it would mean for the whole, what it will mean for the whole concept and definition of the university. So we have to watch that space. Uh, In Ireland, thanks to the foresight of government, sometimes uh, uh, at the uh, spontaneous decisions by ministers in the past, um, we have made massive strides in increasing participation at third level. Uh, participation of 18-year-olds in higher education has surged past 60% over the last two years and our system has responded well to this Uh, but uh, it is envisaged that participation will double again over the next 20 years. This is mind-boggling for many people and this is taking into account The needs of lifelong learning, reskilling, and people coming back into education, dipping in and out right throughout their lives. This will demand a great diversity of institutions, with a scale for each which is appropriate to their mission, with a differentiated mission. So I believe that there will be a lot of experimentation here in this country over the next 20 years, while countries like India experiment on a grand scale with hundreds of new institutions. President Faust spoke of the importance of liberal education in producing the well-rounded graduates. And she cited how China is embracing the humanities at a time when uh, this domain seems, seems to be underappreciated uh, in many countries. In this country, uh, we often go back and cite Cardinal Henry Newman. Uh, he was the first rector of the Catholic University of Ireland. Uh, it's now UCD. Uh, in 1854, uh, in his book uh, *The Idea of the University*, he considered he considered that he was in talking about the university that he, he was, and I quote, speaking of the high protecting power of all knowledge and science, of fact and principle, of inquiry and discovery, of experiment and speculation. What a wonderful notion! It's still applicable today, probably more applicable today than it was in the past. The connection across many disciplines, the integration of all forms of knowledge for wisdom and to address the great challenges of today, I think, are more vital now than ever in our knowledge-driven society. Um, Enda MacDonagh, who's an Irish theologian, spoke in this very hall a number of years ago, Uh, I'm a physicist, so I probably remember this uh, 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 specifically, but um, he he talked of what is needed to create the well-rounded person. uh, And he spoke of the four P's, as in the letter P. uh, And I'm sure you're guessing what they are, but he, he saw them as physics, philosophy, poetry, and prayer. I think that's a very good description of what it means to be human now you may have different views about each of those you may have different views of what prayer means but yes it does describe something uh integrated about the total human experience uh, i could not agree more with uh, president faust about the importance of the humanities along with the sciences in determining the wisdom health and wealth of a nation on the one hand the cultural aspect of science is often neglected uh, because of the focus and, of course, the important focus on economic return. And likewise, I think the contribution of the arts and the humanities to the economy and the quality of life of a nation uh, are often overlooked. We need both aspects, as, profess- as, as President Faust mentioned. We need both aspects of both areas, and we need students, scholars, and practitioners um, who straddle both. So it's important that we do not look see them as separate. Activities uh, that that that, they, that, uh, that scholars and our future graduates are able to straddle both of those and, and integrate them. Um, and as President Faust mentioned, since civilization began, humans have always sought to make sense of their lives, their li- their their life, their of make sense of life and death, uh, the position of an individual in the universe and the secrets of nature. And this is all about the humanities and the sciences together. It's not really, they're not really different uh, in that sense. And of course, I think students appreciate this, the demand for the humanities is is huge. I think society is interested very much in the humanities, very much interested in the sciences. Um, The question is, of course, whether at at, uh, uh, those who who are in charge of financing or funding uh, those areas um, really recognize the importance of the humanities and I think there's an interesting test coming up uh, and that is if and when the uh, famous PRTLI uh, research program, when it's, if, if it's going to be announced, but, and I assume it will, but when it is announced whether the humanities will feature strongly in it, I am quietly confident that they will. Now, throughout all of the change that uh, President Faust uh, mentioned, um, she clearly indicated the importance of not losing sight of the well-honed, tried and tested values of the university worked out over many centuries. I think there is a danger of seeing universities as production lines uh, instead of communities of learning and scholarship, production lines in which productivity is the key and there's no end to productivity in that sense. Uh, uh, production lines which consumers, students that is, check in, uh, avail of packets of knowledge they take off the shelf, uh, come out stamped with a degree, uh, and ready for instant service. Uh, given the pres- pressures of uh, mass education, you can understand this mentality, but it is nothing much to do with the spirit of true education, nor has it much to do, I think, with quality. President Faust talked of the tensions in the university, especially as regards uh, research, uh, and the increasing expectations from research, the tension between short-term return versus laying the foundations of knowledge and scholarship, between applications-driven versus curiosity-driven research. Uh, I think there is probably no resolution to this tension. Perhaps it's creative tension, and perhaps that is, we actually need that. Um, but it seems to me that the best groundbreaking research actually combines all aspects of, uh, of, of, of this, these different approaches, uh, in different ways, at different times, and driven by the best and most curious minds, um, and minds that do not fit neatly into tidy boxes of being this or that, short-term, long-term applied or fundamental. The best minds do not think in that way. Um, and from and, 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 and some of these minds, um, we have been very fortunate to have attracted to this country over the last uh, 10 years. Uh, we do have some wonderful people now in our universities, uh, and they will underpin, probably in a way that's not perfectly logical from input to output, but they will, they will, and their outputs, their graduates, the students they teach, the knowledge that comes from their research, they will produce deep and long lasting impact on our economy, as well as on the quality of life, and so on. Taking the long term view, uh, reminds me of uh, Robert Frost. You mentioned Robert Frost uh, in your talk. Uh, he talked of the road less traveled by, uh, and what Uh, every person should be seeking for an interesting life. Well, surely the university, above all institutions, should be exploring avenues uh, never imagined before, heading down the unknown path, thrilled by a sense of the unexpected, and finding treasure when least expected. And that treasure is what creates the future. I particularly liked the point made by President Faust when she talked of meaning, and education and scholarship as driving at meaning, and I especially liked the, her reference to the importance of being able to see what is immediately before us in new light as a result of the study of history, the study of cultures, study of science, and so on. And um, President Faust. Uh, quote a Seamusini I know down here in the audience. Uh, I would like to uh, quote another of our great Irish poets, uh, Patrick Cavanagh, in his exquisite poem, Epic, when he talked of the global relevance of a local row over land, which is not uncommon in this country. And uh, just to remind you of um, what he said, the last uh, four lines of it. He said, I inclined to lose my faith in Ballyrush and Gorchin till Homer's ghost came whispering to my mind. It said, I made the Iliad from such a local row. Gods make their own importance. So it is important that we see the special factors in our immediate neighborhood to build a basis for global impact. I think we're all surrounded. Every university, no matter where it is, we're all surrounded by richness that is begging to be identified as such. So I like your idea of meaning of being able to see what's there, taking a different perspective. Finally, uh, President Faust mentioned the challenge of financing the university. We tend to leave money to the end, but uh, we know that in every discussion everybody is thinking about money. Uh, you mentioned California, the challenge to its the finances of its universities. You talked about the UK in the emergency meeting last week. Well, for once we were ahead of the UK, and though I'm not sure I would call that a, 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 an attractive league table, uh, because um, the investment in higher education in this country decreased significantly over the last two years, and we we're war- warned to expect further reductions uh, next year. And this is against the backdrop in which uh, students do not make a direct contribution except for a modest student charge of 1,500 euro. This is not sustainable, I believe, if quality is to have any meaning. And if we lose the badge of quality, then we've lost everything. So I see no alternative to the reintroduction of a direct student contribution in whatever form, but I would be very disappointed if the government saw this merely as an opportunity to disinvest in education when the demand is still rising. The threat to research funding has a great danger that over the next two to three years we will see a serious brain drain from this country in which those excellent teachers, researchers that I spoke about a few moments ago, will be attracted away by better circumstances elsewhere. And all the good work that we've done over 10, 15 years will just fritter away. So surely if it is easy to invest billions in banks, surely it makes sense to prioritise another billion and what is really important, people and their education. Well, there are many challenges. Hopefully, we are seeing these challenges with eyes wide open. We do have the benefits of lessons learned in the past and from experience. And tonight, we have the benefits of President Faust's great wisdom and experience. She has given us food for reflection. She's given us, painted a wider context, in which to assess our own challenges, but also, and most importantly, she has affirmed that the university and its values are absolutely indispensable to the modern world. Thank you very much.